There were two types of oilmen, those who thought the sudden boom an insubstantial mirage, and those who cashed in their profits as soon as possible, and those, like Rockefeller, who saw petroleum as the basis of an enduring economic revolution. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Ron Chernow's Titan, the story of John D. Rockefeller, which is this epic biography of the man who defined the oil industry, and he became one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest figure in American history. So Rockefeller founded Standard Oil in 1870. He used many intense competitive practices and relentless vertical integration to turn it into the dominant player it is today. You will see very much of old remnants of Standard Oil still in the energy markets today, even after its eventual disbanding. And he revolutionized many ways that oil was both refined, transported, and marketed to consumers. So his company was incredibly important in those early days of the oil industry, and many of the remnants, the breakout companies, still are massive companies today. So we're going to be covering many of the lessons from John D. Rockefeller's life. He's a person we should all study and look to learn more from. And the reign of Standard Oil, his behemoth of a company in the oil industry that defined much of the antitrust, anti-monopolistic regulations that we know of today. So this episode, I think, is going to be a blast. And let's jump right in. To start off, we should begin with Rockefeller's father, William. So William was known as this snake oil salesman and a charlatan. He would literally go town to town trying to trick people into giving him money. He would say that he's deaf or dumb, give them basically different excuses to think that there's something wrong with him or trick them into giving him money so he doesn't have to work. Chernow says... Throughout his life, he expended considerable energy on tricks and schemes to avoid plain hard work. And that's important for us, this idea that William Rockefeller, John D.'s father, is this snake oil salesman. It's important for us because it gives us such a clear impression of who John D. Rockefeller wants to be. He wants to be very different than his father. He doesn't want to be this trickster. He wants to work for what he earns in life. So he's always pursuing from an early age the hard work path, you know, the path of hard knocks. Chernow also writes how, in contrast to his father's disdain for manual labor, John, always a self-styled son of the common people, gloried in the rigors of country life. So his father, as he was a teenager, around 15, 16 years old, his father, on one of his trips leaving town, went to another town and actually married a second wife and stopped providing as much money to his original family, to John D.'s family. So with this situation, John D. and his family isn't receiving as much money from William. John D. had to drop out of high school and start taking this three-month accounting course just to 
get into the workforce and make money for his family. His father wasn't providing it anymore. He was around 16 years old, so he didn't really have a choice. He had to become the breadwinner of the family. And it's really impressive, this story of his accounting success. He goes to this accounting course. He's one of the top students. He's very hardworking. You'll see throughout his life, he's always outworking his competitors. And as he's graduating his accounting course and looking for a job, he doesn't fear in the face of rejection. Chernow says, when he exhausted his list, he simply started over from the top and visited several firms two or three times. Another boy might have been crestfallen, but Rockefeller was the sort of stubborn person who only grew more determined with rejection. And it got to a point where he finally ended up getting a job. He ends up celebrating what he calls job day even more than his birthday. So he cares so much about his work. We're already seeing the hard work instilled in him by being the opposite of his father, William, the snake oil salesman. And this idea that he doesn't take rejection. He just keeps working and keeps looking for the next option. Hundreds of companies were turning him down and he just said, I'm going to go back to them. I don't care. Much of this internal belief with Rockefeller ends up stemming from a religious side of his family as well. Rockefeller was convinced that he had a God-given talent for making money, was obligated to develop it, and was liberally rewarded by God all compatible with the Baptist doctrine. So this hard work wasn't even for the exterior motivation of making money. It was even more interior. And I know we could look at this and we could say, okay, it seems like he just likes making money either way. But the fact that he has an interior motive makes him keep working hard, even when he's past the point that he already has enough money for the rest of his life, for his family's life. So that internal engine doesn't stop, whereas the external engine, if you're motivated by the money itself, will stop down the line. So over the next few years, he rose up to be the chief bookkeeper at this company, Hewitt and & Tuttle, and eventually he felt like he was providing a lot of value to the company. He was one of their most important members, but he felt he wasn't getting paid enough compared to the other partners. He wanted to get paid similar to other partners, and they didn't agree with him. They looked at him as just this young kid still, 19-year-old, 18-year-old, who was making a big contribution, but they looked at him based on age, and they said, listen, you're not at the partner level now. We've had people who started this firm or are much more experienced than you, so you're just not there yet. This is the salary we're comfortable giving you. And he decided he's going to go off and start his own company. And these accounting companies, it was accounting for produce trading, like fruits and different produce from a farm. So he started a different produce trading firm using his accounting skill set with his friend Maurice Clark as another partner. So they go off, they start their own firm, Maurice Clark and Rockefeller. He is constantly persistent to win business as he's always been. He's constantly persistent to first get the job and now he's running his own company. Same thing, constantly persistent to win business where they will stop at offices one by one and offer their trading service until someone agrees to take on that business. They don't fear rejection. Rockefeller doesn't fear rejection. And he starts to gain a reputation for this. People start 
being willing to give him loans because they see how much of a hard worker he is. So that helps him open up these pathways of further expansion in his produce trading company, the new company they started, and continue to find success, start to become really a reputable firm in their local business. Another interesting side note I want to just bring up until we continue on the oil side of the story is that Rockefeller, even from these early ages, had a very clear philanthropic side. So a lot of people will criticize him because he became very rich and used some anti-competitive practices to get there, which we'll discuss much more throughout this episode. But what they don't realize is, one, he thought it was his God-given talent, as we talked about. It wasn't even about purely just making money to screw over competitors, but he really had this internal drive, this religious drive to it. And from a young age, even as he was running his own produce trading firm, he was donating as much as 10% of his yearly income to philanthropic causes. So he was doing the tithing method where you're donating up to 10% or around 10% of your income every year, even as he wasn't this multimillionaire of the time. He wasn't this rich oil executive yet. I think that's important for all of us. We should always think, how can we give back even if we're not super wealthy or have all the resources in the world to do that? So we can now shift back to the produce trading side. It is now the civil war in America in the 1850s and early 60s. And the civil war ended up becoming this big boon for his produce trading business. It actually caused profits to quadruple to 17,000. So only a few years in, they were making 4,000. And suddenly it quadruples to 17,000 as new trade routes started to pick up. Because of this war, people needed food to service all the military men. So Chernow writes, For all the substantial profits booked by Rockefeller during the war, they would prove mere pocket change compared to the profits following from the rivers of black gold now gushing from the wells around Titusville. So Titusville were the first wells where oil was discovered. And he's kind of transitioning in the book how Rockefeller is finding a lot of success in this produce trading business. And at the same time is when oil is starting to become an interesting landscape as well. It's this gold rush in the beginning. People called it black gold. So now we'll see why oil became so popular and how Rockefeller entered the industry. We should start off with some context. Back then, only wealthy people could afford to light their homes at night. This is before electricity. So oil was not used for cars. It's before cars. It's before electricity. Oil was used to light your home. And only wealthy people could do that. This oil would come from whale oil. And most of the masses, they simply couldn't light their homes at night. Once it got dark out, that's like you have to go to bed. There's not much for you to do. And the big benefit of oil was it allows you to light your homes. So as oil became much more nationalized across the U.S., the real benefit it was allowing for was the masses to light their homes. And of course, on the industrial side as well, it helps with factories and machines. But especially on the consumer side, it was helping light the homes of millions of people across the U.S. 
So Rockefeller found his start in the oil industry when Samuel Andrews, he was this refining chemist and he was a friend of Rockefeller's partner, Maurice Clark. He came and pitched them the idea of investing capital into a business he wants to form to refine oil into kerosene for this lighting home idea. And Maurice Clark, he passed on the investment, but Rockefeller was really interested. He saw there was a lot of activity going on behind the oil fields. So he decided to invest $4,000 and see it as this side project. He saw a lot of people were flocking to the new gold rush industry of oil. And he felt like $4,000 with these big payoffs they're getting in the produce trading business, $17,000 of profits, he could definitely afford for this new endeavor, see how it turns out. Now, over the next few years, the oil industry really started to pick up and prove itself out. And many people, like we said, they did see it as this gold rush, but Rockefeller had a very different fundamental view of the industry. He saw that if he could build a sustainable product, something that could last for the test of time, then he would be rewarded much more than these gold rush people who would just come in and try to quickly profit from the oil industry. So we're going to start discussing a lot of Rockefeller's playbook behind taking the oil industry and either improving it through vertical integration or using intense competitive tactics to get ahead in the industry. So his first playbook tactic is this idea of vertical integration. And Rockefeller is always looking for minor improvements to improve his product because he knows that will be implemented a thousand times over through the refining process. And some of the ways that Chernow talks about Rockefeller's vertical integration is that when he was looking to refine oil and you typically had to buy barrels to put that oil in, instead of buying the barrels, Rockefeller would go to the forest next door from his refining facility. He would literally go to the forest, cut down trees and turn it into his own barrels for half the cost. So that's one simple way. He's like, I could just go to the forest next door and get these barrels for half the cost that these suppliers are charging me. He's looking to vertically integrate. The next thing he would do is there was this sulfuric acid residue that would come out of the refining process. And he's saying, why am I throwing this all away? Is there something I could turn this into? And he realizes this sulfuric acid could actually become the fertilizer for plants. And he has some experience in that with his food trading, produce trading side of the business. But he turns the sulfuric acid residue into fertilizer. He has this excess waste, but now he's looking to actually make it an income stream. The last way is he would buy materials directly for specific jobs, like the plumbing job, for example. So he only would have to hire the labor. Instead of the labor coming in and overcharging him 20% on the material, he would actually just buy the material himself. He would buy, let's say, a toilet for a new bathroom. And then the laborer would have to come in and just install it at a competitive rate. He could bid it out to multiple contractors and someone would have to be very competitive to get his job. So he is always looking to vertically integrate, 
always looking for these minor improvements in his business. I think that's a very interesting first playbook that we should remember when we think about John D. Rockefeller. Vertical integration, how can we find these minor improvements to either add revenue streams to our business or reduce costs? The next big step of his playbook was prioritizing location of these refineries. So he would always opt for refinery spots that are near railroads or different transportation hubs so he could get the lowest delivery rates. He talks about a lot how oil is a very commodity business. And if you want to stand out in the oil business, transportation costs is a big part of your cost. Any type of commodity business, it's very cost-driven. If you could find these cost efficiencies, then you may be able to succeed more than competitors. So he realized this location aspect is going to be incredibly important for getting the lowest delivery rates, which will mean he's able to give lower prices to customers and beat out his competition. This concept is similar to Hamid Mogadam's framework with Prologis, the big industrial company in the real estate space today. They prioritized for the past 20, 25 years to build warehouses and industrial sites that are near freeways and ports connecting to different regional cities and what they call high throughput locations. And that has ended up benefiting them immensely because they've been able to ride this wave of e-commerce. So this is a great lesson for us to learn from Rockefeller. And we could already see how this idea behind location, how location matters, especially with your cost and in these commodity or real estate businesses, how that can be translated into other fields as well. The next playbook item would be Rockefeller's long-term thinking. So we discussed how he was trying to find something that would stand the test of time. He wasn't thinking like the other gold rush oil salesmen who are trying to get a quick buck off of this new industry. And he was always trying to optimize for wells that would not run out soon or offering the lowest cost to customers. So he really will look for long-term success instead of short-term profit maximization. And Chernow writes, Rockefeller succeeded because he believed in the long-term prospects of the business and never treated it as a mirage that would soon fade. This immediately makes me think of Jeff Bezos, who has very similar thoughts with Amazon. He talks about in his early Amazon letters how he is always optimizing for the long-term and for long-term free cash flow over short-term profits. And they have a similar framework where they want to offer customers the cheapest option. They want to offer customers this great experience, obviously, but it's a very cost-centric experience. They're always trying to beat competitors on cost. And Rockefeller thought the same thing. He thought, if we could offer customers the cheapest product, the cheapest oil, then they're going to keep coming to us. Our competitors will go out of business and we will have this long-term durability. So these are three really important playbook themes he was implementing very early on. This is He's in his early 20s. He's just starting to get involved in the oil industry and he's already developing some core facets behind his oil initiative. He's starting to see some success as well. And by the time he's 25, he offers to Maurice Clark and his brother 
that he wants to buy out the rest of the refinery business for around $73,000. And he wants to join with Samuel Andrews as the only partner and not be in business anymore with the Clarks. They were having a little bit of internal drama at this point. So he ends up buying out the full refinery business for $73,000. And that's great business, obviously, because of what Standard Oil eventually became. Chernow writes how oil, not cotton, is king now in the world of commerce. Soon, John D. Rockefeller would reign as the undisputed king of that world. So he's already quickly able to get ahead of many of the short-term thinking competitors because simply he's willing to take a long-term outlook. He's willing to prioritize location, look for those minor improvements to reach vertical integration, and really believe long-term we should opt for low cost to customers instead of profit maximization. The other really important realization for Rockefeller in his early days of building the refinery business is his connection to bankers and his ability to deal with bankers really well. So Chernow would discuss how Rockefeller would play this psychological game with bankers where bankers would approach him on the street, they may see him, and they would say, hey, John D., do you need some money to finance your business? And at the time, he would oftentimes really actually need the money immediately. But instead of just quickly saying yes and accepting it, he would kind of be on the fence and he would say, let me think about it. And then he would hold their loan offer for 24 hours or for 48 hours, making it seem like he didn't actually need the money so he could push for more favorable terms. It's this idea that if they think you need the money or you accept it right away, they may get worried, the bankers may get worried and regret not offering worse terms, not taking a higher interest rate or whatever it may be. So Rockefeller would use this in his advantage where he would take these loan offers, sit on them a little, make the bankers a little nervous, and then he would come back and get even better terms. And the bankers, despite some of this, obviously they didn't know all the tricks he was playing, but the bankers did appreciate Rockefeller because he dealt with them in a very straightforward manner. So Chernow writes, Rockefeller had several other traits that inspired passionate allegiance from bankers. He was a stickler for the truth in presenting facts, never fudged or equivocated in discussing problems, and promptly repaid loans. So if we want to establish trust with our bankers so they're willing to back you when you need that capital, I think these three things that Rockefeller always did are really important to set in place. You want to be truthful and upfront with your banker when there's an issue, you bring it up right away so they're aware of it because otherwise they're going to find out anyway, like we spoke about on the Andreessen Horowitz episode, episode 18, bad news travels fast. They'll probably find out about it, so it's better coming from your mouth. And never fudge on those problems. You're coming directly, you find the solution quickly with them, and you promptly repay the loans. If you're sitting on loans or you have a high default rate, obviously they're not going to back you when you come back to them the next time. So the faster you're able to do these things, the more the banker will trust you and the more they're willing to back you on your next endeavor. And that proved to be very important for Rockefeller because he would use the strategy of always having more cash than his competitors, often throughout his business career. Chernow says, 
it is impossible to comprehend Rockefeller's breathtaking ascent without realizing that he always moved into battle backed by abundant cash. Whether riding out downturns or coasting on booms, he kept plentiful reserves and won many bidding contests simply because his war chest was deeper. So this is not the first time we've seen this, where the best companies keep cash on hand, have that war chest to take advantage of tough scenarios. And with Rockefeller, a lot of that was his relationship with bankers. In the past, we've seen the same thing with Joe Colomb at Trader Joe's. When he was trying to source certain new products in Trader Joe's, he was able to show suppliers and show the manufacturers that he had the cash to fund this new item. Same thing with Warren Buffett during the financial crash of 2008 and 2009. He had a lot of cash on hand and he was able to take advantage of some of these depressed prices that came in the market. So that's another lesson for us as company builders or whenever we're investing or running a company, we should try to keep enough cash so we could take advantage of the tough times when the market falls. So we're now going to skip ahead a little bit to 1867. Rockefeller was raising some money from this rich Cleveland businessman Harkless. And with that was this stipulation that Henry Flagler would join the company as treasurer. He was related to Harkless and it was a way to basically keep up with his investment. He knows the finances are legit. So Henry Flagler now joins Rockefeller in 1867. And this is really the beginning of the real intense competitive practices and what becomes really anti-competitive practices or antitrust practices that define much of Standard Oil. And these parts are the real drama, the crazy parts of Standard Oil's history. So this is where it's going to get really interesting. Just to give you some context on Henry Flagler, his favorite quote is, do unto others as they would do unto you and do it first. So Flagler was this intense negotiator. He's always trying to get the best deal for Standard Oil. And he's thinking, I have to use these questionable tactics because I know my competitor may do that first. So I'd rather beat them to it and get the best rates from railroads or whoever we're negotiating with to make sure that we're the ones who stay around longer. And much of the first issues between Standard Oil and competitors revolved around railroads. So we've already spoken about oil is this commodity. There's very little differentiation between the prices, but transportation is one of the key items that could keep your costs lower than a competitor. He already was saying he wants refinery locations near the railroads, but also the actual rates you get from railroads is very important in your end oil costs to consumers. So one of the first things Rockefeller and Flagler would do, they would constantly play the three Cleveland Railroad companies against each other to try to get the best rates. So the first killer deal that they established with the railroad companies, they basically went to all the small Cleveland refineries and they assorted them, aggregated them together as a bulk customer and promised the railroads that they're going to supply 60 carloads of oil a day. And Standard Oil already had massive scale, and they're also able to take advantage of that, getting these great prices by assembling all the small Cleveland refineries into this one bulk customer 
for the railroad operators. And with that, railroads were somewhat a commodity business as well. They didn't know whether their supply and demand curves would cross. So Standard Oil is coming to them and saying, listen, if you give us this big discount on oil, we're going to be able to guarantee we get you 60 cardloads of oil a day. And that took Standard Oil's cost per barrel from $2.40 to $1.65 per barrel. So this gave them a massive pricing advantage already, an 80 cents pricing advantage, which was instrumental in the early days of them creating their oil empire. And the confidence that Rockefeller had was so high that he even was pushing Cornelius Vanderbilt to bend to his terms. 29-year-old Rockefeller demanded that 74-year-old Commodore Vanderbilt, the emperor of the railroad world, come to see him. So clearly, Standard Oil and Rockefeller felt like they were in the position of power. At this point, it was around 1870 that Rockefeller and Flagler realized that they needed to incorporate Standard Oil into a company. One of the key things they did, we see this theme again and again, incentivizing people with win-win stakes into the business. You want to give people ownership and skin in the game like Sam Zell did, like Elon Musk proved to employees with his heavy skin in the game in the founders. You offer this equity to your employees and you incentivize them and they're more willing to hustle to build this company into a dominant player in an industry because they know they own a piece of that company as well. So when he was incorporating Standard Oil, Rockefeller basically owned about 27%. Some of the other main partners own anywhere from 10 to 13%. And one big issue with incorporation back then was that when you incorporate a business in the 1870s, you're only allowed to do business in your home state. So the way that Rockefeller and Flagler got around this was they created a trust and that trust owned companies outside the state, outside Cleveland, Ohio. So that trust owned companies outside the state. And then each of the individual companies for each state would distribute the dividends back to the stakeholders of Standard Oil. And we can see this formation of a trust to allow you to do business in many different states. That is what later led to the term antitrust. If you've ever wondered why is anti-competitive or monopolistic behavior called antitrust behavior, it originated with Standard Oil and this rule around only being able to do business in your home state, and then Rockefeller and Flagler finding this workaround where they could create a trust and distribute the dividends back to the parent company. So right out of the gate, Rockefeller and Standard Oil was hitting it out of the park. In their first year, they paid dividends of 105% on the stock price. So imagine you pay 100 bucks for a stock, and at the end of your first year, you're getting $105 in dividends. You're fully paid off after one year. So all the skeptical investors who thought oil was just a fad, this is a volatile or commodity industry, there's no way the Standard Oil Company is going to keep its monopoly, they were proved wrong in the very first year. Because if you're willing to put your money on the line and buy a share of Standard Oil, you're already getting fully paid off through dividends in the first year. We know they continue to get paid off handsomely for the ensuing 40, 50 years. Another big point that Rockefeller would emphasize was this idea of cost consciousness. 
So he felt like lower expenses would both help them keep a competitive advantage in the pricing side of things. We've spoken about with commodity businesses, a lot of it is a pricing advantage and that gives you durability in your business. But his other argument was that if you make it seem like you're not making a lot of money, if you have cheaper offices and not that nice of amenities, then fewer people are going to enter the field to compete with you because they don't think you're making much money. It doesn't look like you're living a lavish life in the best offices or the best homes. Rockefeller never allowed his office decor to flaunt the prosperity of his business, lest it arouse unwanted curiosity. That reminds me of Tom Murphy at Capital Cities, where they were acquiring cable networks and different types of television networks. And when he would get a building, he would only paint two walls of the building. He would only paint the front and side facing wall that faced the roads because he didn't want to spend the money painting all four sides of the wall. He didn't care about the two sides that no one would see. This is a similar idea. We're seeing it's cost consciousness to the max, and this allows you to keep a pricing advantage in your business, this competitive advantage to be much more durable than your competitors. So moving ahead, we're now going to get into the Cleveland Massacre, some of the best parts of the book. So the Cleveland Massacre began with some of those collusion agreements with the three railroad companies. And at this point, Rockefeller and the railroad companies, they agreed to form this holding company called the South Improvement Company, or SIC. And this holding company would own shares of Standard Oil and some of the top refineries, and the three railroads would own some of the business as well. So it's this unique structure where the three railroads and Standard Oil, the biggest refineries in Cleveland, have this working arrangement to give each other the best deals on shipping rates. And the agreement was the railroads would give a 50% discount to the refineries in South Improvement Company, and they would give a 40 to 50% kickback on all oil barrels shipped from their competitors. So to put this in perspective, imagine Standard Oil at the time is shipping oil for $2 a barrel, right? We were saying it was just dropped from 240 to 165, but let's just use two as a round number. Imagine Standard Oil is shipping for two. Under this agreement, they would get a 50% discount. So now Standard Oil is shipping for $1 a barrel and their competitors who are shipping for $2, a dollar of that would go to Standard Oil. So 50% of the competitor's price would go to Standard Oil. So on a unit basis, you're basically offering the shipping for free. This is unbelievable to think about. This is ridiculous. When you think about this agreement that Standard Oil was able to strike up with the railroads, he is basically getting his own barrels of oil half off, and he's taking 50% of the payment that his competitors are getting. So as his competitors are shipping oil with the three railroads, and these were really the only choices to ship oil, so the competitors didn't really have another choice, half of that money would just go back into Standard Oil's pocket. That is nuts. That's crazy. We could realize the rationale behind this from the railroad side. You may be asking, why would the railroads do this? Why are they giving up so much economics? And Chernow writes how the railroads with their commodity businesses as well had gotten into such an intense 
pricing war and driven down each other's profits so much that they basically had to agree with Rockefeller because he was guaranteeing those set amounts of oil shipments every day. So we already spoke about in the past with competition is for losers. If you have too much competition, then prices can get driven down. It could be that race to the bottom. So Rockefeller, his job was stepping in and saying, I'm going to solve your price wars. You guys don't have to beat each other insistently on price anymore, but I expect a great price. If you want to charge our competitors a high price, fine, but I expect the best price. And Chernow writes, both refiners and railroads were struggling with excess capacity and suicidal price wars. Rockefeller's supreme insight was that he could solve the oil industry's problems by solving the railroad problems at the same time, creating a double cartel in oil and rails. Instead of ruining the railroads, Rockefeller tried to help them prosper, albeit in a way that fortified his own position. So we're seeing this guy, Rockefeller, is a killer. If you haven't realized it to this point, these stories, the Cleveland Massacre, is more so than any, he's showing his competitive spirit and he understands the competitive pressures or the leverage he could put on his suppliers and on his competitors. And another point of leverage that Rockefeller had, he recognized really early, was that these tank cars that hold the oil, at first they were transporting oil with cars that would hold barrels of oil, but then there were new inventions of literal tank cars that you just fill up with oil directly instead of putting it into barrel that suffers from spillage and, and the like. So Rockefeller was noticing the rise of these tank cars. He decided to go out and buy all the tank cars or most of the tank cars. It was this supply constrained market for tank cars. So he went out and bought a ton of the tank cars. And he basically said to the railroads, if you guys don't give me the best prices, I'm not going to give you tank cars. And what are you going to do then? So we're going to talk about that a, a little bit more later. But these two combinations of leverage with the tank cars and offering this set amount of oil shipments so it could solve their pricing wars is what really led the railroads to accept Rockefeller's terms. Although the South Improvement Company, it was shut down after just three months because immediately there was heavy pressures and complaints. There was literal riots in Cleveland from these refiners saying that they're going to go out of business. Consumers were really pissed off as well. Rockefeller used those three months with the rumors in the air swirling around that they're going to get these incredible prices to beat their consumers handsomely. He used those three months to go to all the other small Cleveland refineries and in a three-month period, there were 26 small Cleveland refineries. He acquired 22 of them. Chernow writes that if we did not sell out, we should be crushed out. It was said that they had a contract with railroads by which they could run us into the ground if they pleased. Rockefeller's strategy was first going to his biggest competitors in the Cleveland refineries and applying this form of loss aversion, negotiating pressure, he was basically saying, if you don't sell your business now for, I should mention, one-fourth of the construction cost or asset value, it's not like he was paying top dollar, but he was saying, I'll pay you one-fourth of your cost because I will likely have to shut down a lot of your capacity or change the operations. 
But if you don't sell it to us for this low dollar amount, then you're probably just going to go out of business anyway, and you're going to lose everything that you've built up. So you might as well sell. So he first went to his biggest competitors, convinced them to sell with these tactics of loss aversion and leverage. And then as the big competitors fell, those dominoes fell, the smaller ones quickly sold out because they realized if the big guys can't compete against Rockefeller and Standard Oil, how are we supposed to? And Rockefeller talks about that he felt like he was giving them, he always puts a spin that he's giving these guys a good deal. He offered stock and he would actually encourage them to take the stock. He said, even though I'm paying you one fourth of your construction costs, this Standard Oil stock is going to be worth much more than what you're making on your business. So take the stock. And he believes in these win-win incentives as we spoke about, but a lot of people didn't take the stock. The ones who did ended up being very wealthy families in Cleveland and on the East Coast, but many of them didn't. They felt like they were just being strong-armed into this deal. Another reason Rockefeller felt like he didn't want to just strong-arm them is because he knew a lot of these people, he would have to work with them in the future, especially he wanted to disincentivize them from starting a new competitive refinery business. So he and his colleagues weren't so short-sighted as to antagonize those very men whom they were eager to have come into a close and profitable relationship with them. So he believes, similar to Sam Zell, that if he's leaving a little bit of, let's say, money on the table or at least offering stock that they could grow in the Standard Oil empire alongside him, then that could lead to a better relationship long-term. There's no reason to just completely put these guys out of business and out of a job. Unfortunately, most people viewed him as this real villain at the time. He was basically just coming in and buying their business for pennies on the dollar and offering this stronghold argument behind it, the South Improvement Company with these complex rebate programs, that they didn't trust him and they didn't take the stock. And unfortunately, there was not much else for them to turn after that point. I think it's important, again, for us to note that there is a very clear dichotomy between what Rockefeller believes he's doing and what all his competitors, everyone else, felt like he was doing in this competitive landscape. So Rockefeller says, I believe the power to make money is a gift from God, just as are the instincts for art, music, literature, the doctor's talent, the nurses, or yours, to be developed and used to the best of our ability for the good of mankind. So Rockefeller, in his own mind, he was always connecting his religion, his faith, to his skill of making money. And that is often how he would rationalize these super competitive business practices. We know already he did give a lot back, and we'll talk a bit about his philanthropy at the end of the episode, but he was always trying to rationalize his business practices through this religion argument. And we just spoke about how some of the actions he took, he felt like he wasn't trying to run these competitors out of their homes. He was still offering them pretty good incentives in the deals. He would say, sell everything you've got, even to the shirt on your back, but hold on to the stock. As in him offering stock to these competitors when he would buy out the refineries, he truly felt like the stock would be much more valuable for them than competing in this boom and bust cyclical business, the oil business. Chernow would also say the creation of Standard Oil was often less a matter of stamping out competitors than of seducing them into cooperation. 
So he often kept the owners of these Standard Oil competitors that he bought out. He would keep them on payroll even after making the acquisition because he just wanted to prevent them from starting a competitive refinery business. Because this field relies so much on price, it's such a commodity-driven, volatile industry, he didn't want these competitors to go off and do their own thing again to compete with Standard Oil and price. So he always had to find ways to cooperate with them. And the competitors, when they would look at Rockefeller's books, when they would consider the acquisition, they would realize, Chernow says, Rockefeller could manufacture kerosene so inexpensively that he could sell below Warden's production costs and earn a profit. So even when he's competing with these small refineries, his cost basis is so much lower that he could just outprice any competitor. So he felt like he was doing this. We want to go back into his mind, Rockefeller's mind. He felt like he was doing these people a favor. He was getting them out of the business of competitive oil, commodity oil markets. And he was saying, ride with me in the standard oil train. Join me. If you can't beat them, join them and we will end up all the better. We've seen that this inherent cyclicality, the competitive nature of oil markets, oil refineries, caused these boom and bust cycles. And to me, this was just a, a personal note. I realized that those boom and bust cycles can be much more painful when the businesses have large debt balances, because you're not able to react to that much quicker. So to me, when I put this note applying to other businesses, I was telling myself, beware of these cyclical businesses like sometimes commodities, real estate, semiconductors, the ones that rely on a lot of debt and they may be over leveraged or they may face an oversupply. Be careful of them in the boom markets because once that swings into the bust cycle, like we've been seeing recently with semiconductors, there's been much less technology demand with inflation concerns and a looming recession, as some people would say, we've seen these companies go from strong profits to high inventory levels and companies that have high debt levels are going to be in much more trouble. If you're over leveraged, you can't just turn the tide so quickly and you may face an issue where you can't pay your interest payments. So I think that's an important note that we should remember. Businesses that are very cyclical, that have these boom and bust cycles, if they have large debt balances, the pain will be much greater once the boom ends. Once you go into a glut, an oversupply period, or there's simply too much leverage and profits fall off a cliff. Now, after the Cleveland massacre, he had acquired 22 of the 26 competing refineries. He was starting to now expand into new cities like Pittsburgh, where people were starting to realize he could just do this at a much lower cost than them. He has such a strong cost advantage. We are now starting to see the clear signs of Standard Oil's monopoly. And much of his thinking is very similar to Jeff Bezos's thinking in the early days of Amazon. Chernow says, early on, Rockefeller realized that in the capital-intensive refining business, sheer size mattered greatly because it translated into economies of scale. This is something very similar to Bezos with some of his early shareholder letters, he would also talk about this idea that if they keep lowering their cost and they keep raising volume, which thus lowers their costs, 
that will be a much better value proposition for customers and it will lead to this flywheel. More customers will come to the business, they will keep lowering the costs, they will increase their volumes and it keeps on going into that circle. So Rockefeller had the exact same idea. He was thinking, I wanna keep lowering the costs, whether that's through reducing the transportation costs, like with those agreements with railroads and owning the leverage points of the tank cars, or if it was just through finding more efficient refining processes that he could squeeze out a little bit more profit for every barrel of oil, and those better prices led to more customers choosing them. And then he's able to go off and buy his competitors at a small pennies on the dollar price, and he has now less competition. So he's able to control his pricing a little bit more instead of respond to the market. So these are the clear signs that Rockefeller and Standard Oil have now really become in the 70s, the late 1870s and early 80s, they've turned into the monopoly player in the domestic oil market. So to circle back to the transportation side of things, Rockefeller was able to continue to build his cartel power in the transportation markets and re-emphasize his monopoly status in the oil markets through this tank car leverage. Chernow said, as the owner of almost all the Erie and New York Central tank cars, Standard Oil's position grew unassailable. At a moment's notice, it could crush either railroad by threatening to withdraw its tank cars. So we had spoken about Rockefeller bought these oil tank cars and he actually financed the development of these new tank cars that were better than shipping barrels because tank cars, you're directly loading the oil and there's less issue of spillage. It actually carries even more gallons of oil in the shipment as well. So Rockefeller had financed these oil tank cars. He owned much of the supply of this new innovation. And now he held this power over the railroad's heads saying, if you don't give me what I want, if you don't give me the pricing I want, I can crush either of you without selling the tank cars. You're gonna be in a much worse competitive position. This is showing the understanding he has of his supplier's value chains. Another tool he used in this leverage battle, it wasn't just the tank cars actually. He says, the company owned a subsidiary, the Galena Signal Oil Company, which monopolized the manufacturing of high-grade railroad lubricants. Simply by stalling on shipments of this indispensable grease, it could bring any railroad to a halt. So this combination that Rockefeller has, he has the main railroad lubricant and the most effective tank car for shipping oil. He is controlling his supplier's value chain. Think about that. He's controlling their value chain to the point that this is how he established that cartel power in railroads and in transportation. He held so much power because he realized the choke points in their value chain and he went out and said, I'm going to buy up all that supply in the tank cars. I'm going to buy up all the supply in the lubricants. And without these two core things, what are you guys going to do? It wasn't until the 80s that he really started to exert even more power over the railroads when he started investing in the new innovation. So tank cars started rising in the 70s. In the 80s, Rockefeller started investing in pipelines instead of tank cars to transport oil. And this allowed him to really play the railroads off each other even further and start to dominate a new third 
of transportation. It was a new method of transportation. And now he was able to say, I could just ship it through my pipeline or I could withhold your tank cars or your lubricants. And now it was really the railroads had no fighting power against Rockefeller. The lesson I learned from this, I think we should all learn, he was making it impossible for either small refiners to ship oil without Standard Oil's consent, without their approval, or the railroads to control their own pricing. They had to offer him whatever pricing he demanded. And the main lesson we should take away is how can we control our own distribution in business? One very pressing example we're seeing right now in the tech world is how Facebook didn't really control their distribution for many years. They were often distributed on mobile platforms like iPhones and Android phones through Instagram, Facebook app, different apps. Obviously, they have websites, but I think the apps drive a lot of their usage. And in this sense, they didn't control their own distribution. And that allowed Apple to severely impact and hurt the Facebook business with their new ATT policy, their app tracking transparency policy. So the issue here with Facebook, Facebook makes a lot of their money from advertising. And part of that, especially on the mobile devices where Apple controls the distribution at the end of the day, they set the policies. Facebook, the way the advertising works is that you get presented an ad on the Facebook app. And then let's say you click that app, it takes you to a third party website where you complete the purchase. But part of this new ATT regulation is that it severs the connection. Part of this whole privacy push from Apple is not sharing third-party data. And included in that third-party data is confirmation of a purchase. So on Facebook's side, the core issue is that it is severing the connection between knowing when the advertisement was served and if a purchase was made eventually. And now Facebook doesn't have that real connection between if we serve a consumer a advertisement like a new shirt, they don't know if the customer went through and paid, bought that shirt on the third-party website. That has become a big issue for Facebook over the last year. So now Facebook was basically handicapped at the knees because they didn't control their own distribution. And if you listen to their earnings call once ATT was announced, they said immediately, this will probably lead to a $10 billion headwind against their revenue, against their business. So we should always think, what are the choke points in our value chain, in our business, and how do we control our own distribution? Are we too reliant on another supplier or on a core ingredient that if someone else were to buy it and to hold leverage against us, we would be in this somewhat fatal position? So we've now gotten the full scope of how wide Rockefeller's monopoly is now. He's dominated the Cleveland refineries. He's expanded across the U.S., across the nation. He owns the railroads. He has these leverage choke points across transportation, investing in pipelines and tank cars, the new innovations. So at this point, no one could really catch up. Chernow says, thus, only five years after the Cleveland massacre, Rockefeller had come to control nearly 90% of oil refined in the U.S., 90% of oil refined in the U.S. Perhaps a hundred tiny refineries still eked out a meager living in the interstices of the industry, 
providing a mirage of competition when it had ceased to exist altogether. He liked to point to these doughty survivors as proof that all the stories about the strong-arm tactics of Standard Oil were grossly exaggerated and that the oil industry was a scene of vibrant competition. I think we could just laugh at that point because this is very similar to Peter Thiel's talk, Competition is for Losers. He describes how Google likes to make the argument that they're in this big market with lots of competition. They won't define their market as search, but they may define their market as the whole internet. And they'll say, oh, we have competition here and here and here. And Standard Oil would do the same thing. We have hundreds of small refineries that may be making a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks of profits, but they're a competitor, right? So they were always trying to argue that they still have this competition. And in reality, they dominated the industry. They controlled 90% of oil refined in the U.S. Rockefeller and Flagler have reached the pinnacle of their success. They've seen that their complex web of Standard Oil Trust, the incorporation, all that hard work of competing with the refineries and building the leverage in the transportation networks have led to them now really owning all the power in the industry. I would have everyone save his earnings, not squander it. Own the industries, own the railroads, own the telegraph lines. Employees share ownership. It welded the organization more tightly together, creating an esprit de corps that helped in steamrolling over competitors and government investigators alike. That's that idea of aligned incentives again. He was pushing for his company and the people he acquired to own the stock and to own the business. So they all would work together to steamroll competitors. And now at this point, there's no one to compete. They own 90%. Chernow writes, it was the biggest and richest, the most feared and admired business organization in the world. Earning steady, reliable profits year in and year out. Rockefeller could be forgiven for believing he had outwitted the business cycle. Well, now just skip ahead because I think we've covered most of the monopolistic times and this really covers much of the rise of Standard Oil. It's these strategies around the refineries, the Cleveland Massacre, the transportation networks and leverage, economies of scale, lowering costs to consumers. We've covered much of the rise. And by the late 80s, now that they had this dominant national business, they were starting to expand globally, as we said, they employed more than 100,000 people and they were now controlling 85% of oil production I believe across the world at this point, by the late 1880s. So that wraps up much of the monopolistic story. I wanna spend a little bit of time talking about Rockefeller's management tactics, because I think that is important also in our roles as managers and leaders. And then we could touch on some of the antitrust monopolistic issues a bit, and then Rockefeller's legacy. Rockefeller equated silence with strength, Weak men had loose tongues and blabbled to reporters, while prudent businessmen kept their own counsel. Two of his most cherished maxims were, success comes from keeping the ears open and the mouth closed, and a man of words and not of deeds is like a garden full of weeds. So he was always actively listening, and that's very important for us. You don't want to have a loose tongue as even a manager or whatever position you are in a company. How can you be listening to the next innovation or what your counterparties are telling you. And more important to him was that 
you don't want to speak too much as to reveal all the secrets of your business. So he was much more of a listener. And when he spoke, it was very powerful. On the talent acquisition side, Rockefeller often spoke about how he would hire talented people as found, not as needed. He would offer stock to offer those aligned incentives, very important in getting the business to work together, steamroll competition. And he is hiring talent as found. It's not as needed. The Snowflake CEO, Frank Slootman, said the same thing. So did Ben Horowitz in Hard Thing About Hard Things. When you find really talented people, you should hire them because they may not be around later or they may be competing with you. And he took it even a step further. Rockefeller, whenever he was beaten in business or in the courtroom, he would go out and recruit those people to join Standard Oil because he felt like if they beat me, then I definitely need them to join our own company and advance the cause, this monopoly in the oil industry. So he would hire the people who would beat him and he would hire talented people as found instead of as needed. On the process side, he would also squeeze every last piece of value out of his oil. And some of the ways he did that's really ingenious when you read about it. He would sell wax for chewing gum. He created asphalt for roads. He created candles, dyes, paints, acquired this main petroleum to produce the jelly Vaseline, actually. So he was always trying to squeeze the last dollar out and he was trying to find cost savings wherever he could, even if it was for pennies on the dollar, because he knew that process would be repeated thousands of times. I think the most important tool from his management playbook was delegation. So he said, has anyone given you the law of these offices? No, it is this. No one does anything if they could get anybody else to do it. He had this relentless approach to delegation. He felt like he doesn't want to micromanage his employees, especially once they got to this massive scale. There's no way you can micromanage thousands of employees before the internet age. It's not even like you could communicate quickly through a phone or email. So he had to trust his employees. He would throw them into the fire with these big projects like competing with a refinery or negotiating with a railroad. And then he would not get in their way. He would just tell them what the objective is unless they failed. And this core rule in Standard Oil was this idea of relentless delegation. No one does anything if he could get anybody else to do it. That is very important as companies scale. A quick note on his personal side, as Rockefeller got older and he gained wealth, he started to prioritize exercise and resting much more. He's decided to get into gardening and he was taking naps on a daily basis. He felt like that would sustain his longevity. And it really did. I, I believe he lived until he was 98 years old. So we see this core idea. He started exercising and resting. We saw a very similar idea with Ed Thorpe. He realized when he was 18 or 19 years old that an hour in the gym keeps a day away from the hospital on the back end of his life. So we should all prioritize exercise, even if we're in the most demanding jobs, because it offers this longevity to our lives. In addition to, obviously, the mental benefits, the cognitive benefits, but even just the physical longevity benefits of being able to operate for a much longer basis. Rockefeller was going until he was 98 years old. So we could transition back to the antitrust 
aspect of Standard Oil. Some of these concerns were starting to bubble up in the late 1880s and early 1890s. And Chernow writes how this fact, the Standard Oil Company always kept in mind that they must render the best service and be content with a largely increasing volume of business rather than increase the profit so as to tempt others to compete with them. So we're seeing they understood that there were antitrust and monopolistic concerns, and they were thinking, as long as we offer the best product to customers at a cheap price and we increase our volume of business, then customers are going to be happy and antitrust won't be a massive issue or monopolistic behavior won't be a massive issue. They personally, through this low-cost, high-customer-satisfaction model, they were emphasizing an absolute profit dollar at scale instead of high margins. And this parallels, like we spoke about, Bezos with Amazon. He had a very similar framework. Let's get a large amount of volume. Let's keep costs to a low amount. Let's keep the customers happy. That customer-centric nature is very core to Amazon's philosophy. And let's optimize for absolute profit dollars instead of the highest margins. We see very similar things at Costco and at Trader Joe's. Joe Coulomb had very similar thoughts with their own operating playbook. So for a bit of time, this did hold off the anti-competitive concerns. But eventually, some of these concerns came to bear in what was called the Sherman Antitrust Act. It was established in 1890. The point of this act was to limit massive monopolies like Standard Oil. The issue with the Sherman Antitrust Act was it didn't really become a relevant government act for another basically 20 years because there was not clear definitions around monopoly to really impact Standard Oil. And it even received the moniker the Swiss Cheese Act. No one really thought it's an important act. Now, the intention of this act to limit monopolies was to curb a lot of the practices that Standard Oil did, the anti-competitive, antitrust practices, the price fixing, like with the railroads, exclusivity deals, pricing below cost to get rid of your competitors, like they would do with some of the Pittsburgh refineries, and all the consolidation, going out to refineries, buying up all the consolidation to own the entire supply. So that was a lot of the intention of the Sherman Antitrust Act, but because of this definitional lack of clarity, it did not really gain any reputation or make any impact until the 1910s period. That's when it really started to take into effect. I'm not going to really go into all the antitrust battles. There was a lot of battles with Ida Tarbell, who was one of the main opponents of Standard Oil. But I will just kind of close off on this page that Standard Oil eventually had to face this Sherman Antitrust Act. And as we spoke earlier, antitrust because of Standard Oil's natural trust structure to do business in different states when it wasn't allowed. And eventually in 1911, Standard Oil was declared a monopoly. They provided that real definitional clarity to the Sherman Antitrust Act, and they were forced to break up into multiple companies. So they're split into 34 companies. And if you want to just learn more about the actual antitrust hearings on more of a podcast format, I think Acquired did a great podcast on Standard Oil and especially covering Ida Tarbell's some of these courtroom battles. 
I don't want to go into that too much. I care more about the business lessons, frankly. But an interesting point is that Standard Oil at this at this point was declared a monopoly, forced to split into 34 companies. The companies remain some of the biggest oil companies and these remnants remain with us today. So one of the companies that it was split off with, it was named ESSO, E-S-S-O. And as you could realize listening to this, that sounds like S-O, which they were playing a joke on the government, basically, as in S-O standard oil. So it was named S-O, E-S-S-O. Eventually that became Exxon and combined with Mobil. It's now Exxon Mobil, one of the largest energy companies in the world. Amico came out of Standard Oil, Chevron, BP America, Marathon, Arco, Conoco of Conoco Phillips, and Pennzoil. So this impact that John D. Rockefeller had and his development of Standard Oil in the oil industry really took them from being a small refinery with process implementations in Cleveland to being the biggest energy and oil provider in the world. And now we see to this day, it's had such a big impact on us. ExxonMobil, Chevron, these are still massive companies in 2022, almost 2023. That is so crazy to think about. His innovations in the 1870s, 1880s have held on up to today. After that splitting, we really see that it ended up helping Rockefeller because after the split, these individual companies went public and revealed their financials. People were able to see how great these businesses were. They're super profitable. And at the same time was when Henry Ford's Model T started to blow up and it was the rise of the gas market with automobiles. So this was now a second wave that Standard Oil was able to rise and that only catapulted Rockefeller's net worth as all these individual companies were starting to dominate the gas market as well. We spoke about how a lot of this oil dominance was before gas. It was for lighting homes and pre-electricity. So this gas market blowing up, the rise of automobiles gave it this new wave of growth that Standard Oil and the broken up remnants of Standard Oil were able to rise from. Turnout talks about how in 1913, Rockefeller was worth about 900 million and US GDP was about 40 billion. So he was worth more than 2% of US GDP. And that was after he had already donated about half of his wealth. So this is why a lot of people will say Rockefeller was the richest person in modern day, richer than Bezos or Elon Musk, any of these guys, Bernard Arnault, that we see today. Because when he related to US GDP, he was 2% of US GDP. 900 million is not the same as 200 billion today, but when we consider the power he had for the amount of money that the US contained on a gross domestic product basis, Rockefeller had 2% and he had already donated so much to philanthropic causes. If he hadn't have done that, he may have been worth 4% of GDP. So this is why people consider Rockefeller the richest person in history. He was able to ride the wave of the automobile and Ford's Model T even after Standard Oil was split up into 34 different companies with the antitrust cases. And 
To close it off, Rockefeller had an incredible impact as he grew older and devoted more time and money to philanthropy. So some of the innovations that came from Rockefeller's donations, this will really blow your mind. So just get ready for this. He created the University of Chicago, medical schools as a framework across the nation was really urged on by Rockefeller. John Hopkins was one of the first medical schools and they emulated John Hopkins starting many medical schools across the nation. They donated the land that MoMA is at now in New York, the Museum of Metropolitan Art. So they donated the land that MoMA was eventually created on. Rockefeller's son created many of the national parks and devoted money to creating many of the national parks like Teton National Park or Smoky Mountains as well. We obviously know of Rockefeller Center in New York. And they created what's known as the Rockefeller Institute of Science, which has made these fundamental breakthroughs in science and virology. They discovered in this Rockefeller Institute of Science the cure to AIDS. They discovered DNA in genes. They discovered autoimmune diseases. They discovered blood types and even more. So Rockefeller, from a very early age, he was tithing, as we discussed in the very beginning of the series. But now we're seeing he has reached this immense amount of wealth and he knows there's not much for him to do with all this wealth. He's not nearly as involved in Standard Oil now that it's split up and into all its operating businesses. And he goes out and makes this unbelievable impact on the rest of the nation. We have learned so much from him today. He is one of really the fathers of American capitalism that we know of today, both from the competitive side, the monopolistic side, that some of it we should avoid, but we could certainly take many lessons around being the lowest cost competitor, improving our process through thousands of iterations, owning our own distribution and seeing the choke points in our supply. So we've learned many lessons on the business side and we've seen his impact carry through to 2023 from 1850s, 1860s, 1870s up until 2022, 2023, modern day era. His impact has held true with his energy companies, ExxonMobil, Chevron, the remnants of Standard Oil and his philanthropy, like University of Chicago being one of the best colleges in the U.S., multiple medical schools, and really an institutionalization around a medical practice. Rockefeller Center, the MoMA, the Institute of Science, AIDS cure, DNA, autoimmune diseases, blood types, so much impact he's had on the U.S., so he is such a fascinating person for us to study. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Titan and exploring the minds and the business practices of John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. Please share it with a friend if you enjoyed the episode, and I'm excited for the next one. Thank you for listening.